scriptures can communicate different meetings at different times in our life according to our needs. A scripture that we may have read many times can take on nuances, nuances of meaning that are refreshing and insightful when we face a new challenge in life. When I stumble, I will keep getting up relying on the grace and enabling power of Jesus Christ. I will stay in my covenant with him and work through my questions by study of God's word, by faith, and with the help of the Holy Ghost whose guidance I trust. I will seek his spirit every day by doing the small and simple things. This is my path of discipleship. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me. Yeah, this one's just um, just two chapters, Matthew 5 and Luke 6. And they both kind of cover, um, obviously, throughout the Gospels, you get different perspectives of the same events. And so we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and stuff like that. And um, it's kind of interesting because uh, there's a lot of very quoted scriptures in Matthew 5. Obviously, the Beatitudes are always talked about. Then there's the salt of the earth part that people are always talking about. And then the candle uh, on a on a hill, a candlestick, not putting it under a bushel. That was always talked about. And this, I mean, that's within the first 16 verses, all of that happens. Pretty pivotal teachings, obviously, that we talk about here um, in, in these chapters. Um, what about the about the Beatitudes? President Harold B. Lee taught. In that matchless Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has given us eight distinct ways by which we might receive joy. These declarations of the Master are known as the Beatitudes and have been referred to as preparation, as the preparation necessary for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. They embody, in fact, the constitution for a perfect life. So it's almost like, I don't know, the way I've looked at it in the past is like, there are certain people who are the poor in spirit, and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are certain people that mourn, they'll, they'll be comforted. There are certain people that are meek, they'll inherit the earth. But what it's basically saying is you need to do all of this, all of these things. If you want to be per perfect, as he says later on, be, be therefore perfect, um, these are the things to aspire to, right? Plus, be merciful, uh, be pure in heart, be, be a peacemaker, all of that. So it's kind of interesting to look at it that way. Like, here's the steps. If you want to have a perfect life, these are the characteristics you should pursue. So I really like this section because I like to think a lot about how Christ, he was teaching them the gospel law. And, and in verse, you know, I'm going to jump around a little bit. In verse 17, he lets them know, I have not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill it, you know, so the 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 understanding that the people had was we're following the prophets, we're following the law, and this guy's telling us something different. 
And he's trying to tell them, I am not trying to tell you something different. And I'm not trying to do away with any of that. I'm trying to show you how it's supposed to be, what that was supposed to lead you to. It was preparatory. And, and this kind of behavior I see very, that continues in our time. It's not unique to them where we say, oh, here comes, oh, they're doing away with this program or they're doing away with that. They're trying to get, you know, what's happening, you know? And it's like, no, it's preparatory. And we've heard that theme about we have continual revelation and con the restoration continues, that it's not a one-time event, that it continues. And sometimes we can fall under in the trap of having these similar feelings. Like after this amazing discourse, he lets them know, I know you're uncomfortable. I am not come to make, to do away with with the prophets. You know, I'm not in opposition of them. I'm to fulfill everything they've been talking about. So it kind of puts it back on us. Like the discomfort that we may feel in conference or at church or things where we think, oh, this doesn't seem to jive. Most of the time we should be examining ourselves and not thinking that either the prophet or the brethren are out in left field just they're out of touch, not knowing, you know, or why Why do they have to change from home teaching to ministry? Like, if we would have just done it right like I do it, you know, it's it's just, I, I just, I don't know. But there are two things right before this, you know, I, he does the, the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are, are these things, which it's interesting because someone in, in that time period, well, someone in, in just social culture, Someone who is poor in spirit is not valued. Somebody who's mourning is not valued. Someone who's meek is looked as weak. Someone who's hungry after righteousness. People could say, oh, you're not fulfilled. You're, can't you just be happy in your sin, you know? Uh, someone who's merciful, sometimes we think that that's a sign of weakness. Someone who's pure in heart, oh, come on. What are you, are you just a prude? Uh, are you just a Molly Mormon, you know, whatever? Someone who's a peacemaker, it's like, well, didn't they deserve it? You know, didn't don't they deserve it? Better us, better them than us, you know? If we don't do it first, they'll do it to us, you know, that kind of attitude. And he's trying to say that these behaviors that often are not valued by society are actually very valued in heaven. And, and that's why it's kind of one, it's almost like one of those Zen moments where it's like, Christ is trying to teach us something that is the opposite of what we think. Mm -hmm. And he's doing it in a way that, that I, I mean, it's hard not to read these and, 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 and feel that this is right. And then, and then the, the, the two things that, that he describes us as in, in verse um, 13 and in 14, he says, ye are the salt and ye are the light which both of them are examples of things that interact with other things. And I, <laughs> this is kind of weird, but I think sometimes we think I'm going to create my, my sanctuary of gospel righteousness and let other people burn. And he's trying to say, no, you are the salt. Because of you, you're going to preserve the earth. You're going to pre help preserve others. And you are the light, meaning, and you take that light and you don't hide it because you're trying to preserve the light. It's not for the light's sake. It's for others to see. And when they see it, they'll be drawn to Christ and to God. You know? Not when they see it, they'll think you're great. You know, you're, you're, you're just such a good. 
person. Now, it's when they see it, it's so they glorify God. So again, not about you. And the salt also not about you. But if both aren't working correct, then you're you might as well. You're anything you do. If you cannot be the salt, then you're cast out and be trodden underfoot. Yeah, I think it's really important. The the whole concept of building upon what was already there and not there to just destroy it, because we see it oftentimes as replacing the law of Moses. And in some ways it did in their lives. Um, but it was also to build upon what already existed. Things like uh, the old law of Moses, do not kill. He was teaching more like, do not get angry. Um, don't commit adultery. Don't have lustful thoughts. Don't break oaths made in the name of God. How about instead we don't take God's name in vain? Take an eye for an eye. That's justice. And he's saying, turn the other cheek and have mercy. You know, it's it's this like building on it saying yeah you know what we still should not kill but even more than that let's control our passions let's not get angry you know now that we've gotten used to not killing people <laughs> as the rule let's go to the next thing which is control your anger don't even let it get to that point and i think that's that's really important that that we we emphasize that he's building upon it it's kind of like when you're learning math or something, um, go from algebra to calculus. It's not like they say, okay, now we're learning calculus. Forget everything you learned in algebra. We're not doing that anymore. You know, instead it's like, here's the principles you learned and here's a new way to apply it. And here's some new information to be able to do more, right? That kind of concept. So uh, then the, there's a, in verse 38 and 39 of chapter five, he says, ye have heard, that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And this was a very foreign concept for them at the time. I think that not only was it encouraged, but it was justified to do an eye for an eye. It, was, it wasn't seen as being ruthless. It was seen as being the right thing to do. And so for him to come and say, you know, actually, I, I would rather that you turn the other cheek. Like you said earlier, that could be perceived as weakness. That could be perceived as like, yeah, but what about the justice of it? And I, I think that that is really the culmination of what made his teachings different from what the Pharisees were teaching, from what the law of Moses was teaching, and really kind of made the Pharisees nervous because he was saying, all of this stuff that we're that we're used to doing that we've found acceptable for all this time uh there's a better way now you know we're going to try to be better than that now and build upon it yeah i think that concept of building upon it is really important because he didn't come to outright just condemn them hey you're all being that he's inviting them to okay now do something better you know except and those that did became his disciples and those that didn't want to accept something better became the people that sought to kill him and and to trick him into you know i i like that that section you know that you were talking about where it's talking about in your heart or you know about the anger or the lustfulness it's almost like he's trying to say there's something more than the outward appearance in and, and what that reminded me a lot of is in moroni chapter 7 verse 6 and verse 8 
where he says, For behold, God has said, Man being evil cannot do that which is good. For if he offereth a gift and prayeth unto God, except he do it with real intent, it profit him nothing. And then in verse 8 again, he says, If a man being evil giveth a gift, and he does it grudgingly, wherefore it is counted unto him the same as if he had retained the gift. Wherefore it counted it is counted evil before God. So again, we're we're getting to to learn that it's it's not just our actions, but where is our heart? And part of that is taught again with the parable of the widow's mind, because this is this goes the other way, where she gave the greatest gift of all, because it was all she had, but outward appearance wise, it was very minuscule. So there are times where our ability to improve may not outwardly be a giant. I didn't turn my life around. I could only do this. But did you do it with real intent? Did you do it with full purpose of heart? Then it's counted as a really great thing, and God accepts that gift and that sacrifice. And on the other hand, if you do this great thing, but it was like minimal effort, or you delegated it, or you just took the credit of by happenstance, did, is it really with all your heart? And so I, I, that's part of these chapters I, I really liked because uh, Christ is really trying to focus us on, on you know, there's, there's the law of Moses, which was very outward facing. There is more to the gospel than that. It's, it's what's in your heart, you know. And we know he says, we also have, when he says sacrifices, you're done with the uh, mosaic, Bob Moses sacrifices, animal sacrifices will be done away with, right? And he says, what you sacrifice now is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Well, I think it's also oftentimes harder to to really truly do that than it is to maybe sacrifice an animal. To really go with a broken heart and contrite spirit and and really truly do that, I think that's it demands more of you. Um, and that's really what this is about. I think it's really about saying, okay, we've got the foundation, we've got the basics. Now we're going to we're going to demand more of ourselves. In Luke chapter six, verses thirty-five through thirty-seven. He, he brings in some more concepts that were not common to people at the time. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your father is also, is also is merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. He's saying it starts with you now. It's not some law that you have to just follow the stipulations and look it up. Well, what does the law say we have to do? Now he's saying it starts with each individual now. You forgive first and don't expect to be forgiven right away. You do it without regard for expectation of the same thing in return, but you will get it. God will give it to you. You know, that whole idea of lend hoping for nothing again. Just be generous, just be thoughtful, just be caring without expecting that everyone treat you a certain way or that you get some sort of reward in return. And in the, in the next lesson, he gets more into that, but it was just fascinating to me because I think he's really talking, he's talking to all of us, but he's also talking to the establishment at the time and how it was like the Pharisees were judges. The Pharisees followed the, the written law and it was more like, are, are we adhering to these written things? 
And he's saying, you don't have to do that anymore. You have to be thinking about in this situation, what is the right thing for me to do? I don't have to be told by the law that this is what I should do. I need to be thinking about just what's the right thing to do. I can look it up and we can make, we can write down your, your expected reaction to every possible scenario, or you can just say, here's the principle. Now act according to this principle going forward. Love first, be caring first, be generous first, be forgiving, don't be judgmental, and then see that you get that reciprocated nine times out of 10. And especially uh, from our Heavenly Father, like even if people take advantage of that, that you will get blessings in return. There's a scripture about exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> you can guess where he's at in the Book of Mormon, you know, in, in Mosiah 4, where, where King Benjamin is doing his great discourse, you know, and, and he in verse 27, he says, See that all things are done in wisdom and in order, for it's not requisite that a man should run faster and have strength, but he's expedient that he should be diligent, that he might win the prize. So he's trying to say, don't let these things overwhelm you, but also put diligent effort. Don't let what you have to do and you can't do, you know. And then he says, remember, whosoever among you borrows from his neighbor should return what he borrows, according to what he's agreed. And, and, then, and then he gets to the end where he says, I can't tell you all the ways thereby you may commit sin. Or there are diverse ways and means. And if you think about that phrase, think about the times when the Pharisees, oh, well, we haven't gotten there, but but they come to Jesus and they say, hey, check out this man who's a uh, lame. Who committed sin? Was it his mother or his father, you know, that, that he was punished? They were very much, which is the greatest law? They, they were trying to find like, almost like a contract, like type of thing. And then King Benjamin says, but I tell you, but I can tell you that if you do not watch yourselves and your thoughts and your words and your deeds and observe the commandments of God and continue in faith of what you have heard concerning the coming of the Lord, even up to the end of your lives, you must perish. And now man, remember and perish not. So he's trying to, again, the same principle because he's a prophet of Christ. So these are his words as well, trying to tell us the ways, if you're going to look for a line, if you're going to be asking, where's the line? He's telling you there are many lines. There's going to be a line over there. There's going to be a line over here. How do you know? Well, you have to watch your thoughts, your actions. There can't be a rule for everything. Hence, the baptism of fire. You need to receive the Holy Ghost. You need to start understanding the natural man within you doing the things so you can have the companionship of the Holy Ghost, so you can act and have wisdom, so you can treat others with the pure love of Christ. You know, it's just, I don't know, it's its fascinating to me because there's a people on the other side, like hearing almost the exact same thing in a different way. And, and you see that there's that consistency of the gospel. That's really important, that it didn't matter who he was teaching the message uh, was adapted to them, but it was the same message always. The other really important thing that happens in these chapters, especially in Luke 6, is he calls his apostles and chooses 12 of his disciples. So I think it's important to note that there is a difference in the terms disciples and apostles. Um, all of us who choose to follow Christ and, and to follow his teachings are his disciples. But from that group of disciples, he selected 12 people who would be his apostles. And in, in the word apostle means one sent forth. Uh, we get that 
We read that in the Bible dictionary. And also uh, in modern revelation in DNC 107.23, it says that it calls them special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. And from the special witnesses for Christ video, uh, President Hinckley says that apostles are men who have a witness of the Lord's divinity and whose voices have been and will be raised in testimony of his reality. So while all of us can certainly testify of Christ and can share our experiences, what what do you think is it that makes them special witnesses? Like how are they, in what way are they set apart from a regular disciple? I think it's that sent part that they are commissioned to go into the world to bear their witness. Where we're more commissioned to around our surroundings, you know, to to be a disciple, lead people to Christ, be that salt, be that light. But I think they are commissioned to be the official witnesses to all the world. So maybe it's similar, maybe it's different. I don't know. I don't know. Was that a question where you just or yeah. were you tearing up for for you were gonna give an answer to that? <laughs> no, I, I wasn't looking for anything in particular. I was just asking like what I, what you thought. And I agree. I think it's they have a special mandate. I think they have a special responsibility beyond that of just a normal member to just kind of lift where they stand, you know. Their purpose, and you can see it even in modern times. Their purpose is to dedicate their lives to teaching about the Savior and to proclaiming his gospel throughout the world. And like as much as I, many of us would like to be able to do that 24 seven, um, it's just it's not my calling. It's not what I'm supposed to do in that way. I can live a, a good life and hope that people will see that I'm a follower of Christ by my actions. And I can definitely share the gospel with anyone around me. But. These men have been have basically that's all they do, right? <laughs> and if I if I said, well, I'm going to go the extra mile and become a a special witness of Christ, and I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to travel the world and teach about the gospel, well, that's great, um, but I haven't been called to do that. I haven't been set apart to do that. And so I think that's that's where it it is different. Uh, when those men speak, they are speaking in the name of Jesus Christ, right? I can share my testimony with people. I can share my beliefs, my thoughts, but it's not been given to me. I have not been set apart and given that calling as an apostle to do that for the world the way they have. Yeah, and I also think it also mean, means that they have priesthood keys to govern yeah. and lead the church and open missionary work and work with the Lord's receive revelation what the timing is to do certain things, what the will of the Lord would be, you know. I don't know that they're they're not marionettes, you know, where they're like, I'm just acting and you know, I, I think they also need they also continue to study and grow and learn like all of us, you know. They have just they have developed traits that allow them to be in tune and follow the Lord and are given that mandate, you know. It's kind of like President Hinckley once said about it when he was speaking to the the Iranian priest. And he said, "A deacon has just as much responsibility in his sphere of responsibility as the prophet does in his sphere." There's the Sermon on the Mount, and then there's what's called the Sermon on the Plain, and in many ways they're similar. 
Uh, but there's this quote by Matthews in the book, Behold the Messiah. He says, in, in, this, in his sixth chapter, Luke records an event similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but places it on the plain after Jesus had come down from the mountain, having just ordained the twelve. There is a question whether these are two different sermons or two accounts of one sermon. It has been noted that Matthew's account is to the disciples only, whereas Luke's account seems to be seems to include a multitude as well as the disciples. It's possible that Jesus gave instructions on the mount to the twelve and then came down with the twelve and delivered portions to the multitude on the plain. And I think that's also part of being an apostle that kind of separates them from being a regular person. Um, not that they have access to knowledge or information that we shouldn't, but that they do have additional instructions, additional insight, additional, um, because they're dedicating every day of their lives to this, there's a lot of things that they're talking about, that they're considering, that they're planning for the future that we don't all have to be, part be participants in. And it's not that it's like this exclusive club. I see it more like let us handle where we're going to put temples. Let us handle where we're going to establish missions or close missions or whatever. And when it's time, when it's the right time, we'll reveal it, whether it's through general conference or any, any other means. And then we expect everyone to not only know it, but then act accordingly. We go every conference and we, we, we always hear the theme of understanding the keys of the priesthood and understanding how revelation works. And, and part of that is knowing that as a father or as a mother or, you know, a matriarch or patriarch of your home, you can receive revelation for your children. Or you won't receive revelation for someone else's children. Or, or has uh, give, been given a calling to be Sunday school president or something. You can receive revelation for how to administer that program and, and how to call teachers and you know how to make things better but you won't receive revelation that the bishop should be receiving you know and there's an order in all those things and just as you know we have the the godhead you know god the father jesus christ and the holy ghost who work together they also have distinct jobs you know responsibilities and so does the first presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve, the, uh, the presiding bishopric, the presidency of the seventies, the seventies, the area authorities, the state presidents, the you know the bishops, the subsequent presidents, all the way to the primary president, you know, and the primary uh, teacher, you know, and and there's an order to things, not because someone is better than someone else, it's because that's how revelation works, and if it didn't, if we don't respect the keys and whom receives revelation, we end up with apostasy. We end up with contention. We end up with all the things that Christ came down when he came to, to the Nephites. He said, I perceive that you're you're arguing about the matter of baptism. And then he gives a whole talk on on how contention is of the devil. You know, if you're not one, you're not mine. And then he sets people aside. He tells them exactly how to do it because we're not here to carry out our will. That's the, the number one rule, in my mind, of the priesthood and the organization. We're not here to do our will, but to do the will of God. And because we're imperfect, by, by magnifying our calling and doing the best we can with what we're given, we refine ourselves, we sanctify ourselves, we improve ourselves. 
We don't do it by doing somebody else's copy. We don't do it by criticizing. And it's funny because some of these beatitudes and some of these things that we need to have mercy and love for our enemy, we think it's, oh, us versus someone outside the church. And it's like most of the time you'll have the opportunity within the church to exercise those attributes, to forgive someone, to so be it. I don't agree with this thing that the primary resident is trying to do, but I will do my best and I'll support and I'll look to how to change my heart. And sometimes we have to say that we have to keep an eye on what God values and what we value may not be the same thing. You know, we live in a world that the one with the right answer is the one that's right. You know, the one with the most money is the one that's right. The one that that has the perfect plan that has no holes in it is the one that, and that's not the way God does things. He does things sometimes slowly, and then sometimes it's for us, and sometimes he's teaching us something through the process, and we're thinking it's about teaching somebody else something. Yeah, I, I think one of the, one of the things that people struggle with a lot is the idea that um, trials are necessary, that enduring all of that is somehow going to leave you better off. I, I know some people who have been through some very difficult things in their life, and they're like, you know, I would like to say that you know, I, I guess I'm a better person because I endured that, but I would, I don't think that I would do it again. I don't think I would endure, have, I would put myself through that again if I, if I could choose. Because, it, you know, it's like when people are going through something very difficult, kind of the last thing they want to hear is, well, you'll, you're going to be so much better off at the end of this. It's not that comforting. You know what I mean? And Sometimes it's like, yeah, you're telling me I, I lost my family member or I am enduring this horrible hardship and you're just telling me, oh, this will be so much better for you someday. And it's like, yeah, I would rather just not lose my family member. I would rather just not have all of these horrible things happen to me. It, it is challenging. And I think it it oftentimes in the moment doesn't bring a whole lot of comfort to be like, hey, just be meek and be merciful and be this and that. And, you know, that's such a nice thought. Like sometimes it's like um, right now I am just full of vengeance. You know, <laughs> right now I'm just full of anger. Right now I, I don't want to hear all of that. Don't tell me that I'll inherit this and that. What about right now? Because a lot of those beatitude blessings are kind of after this life. It's talking about things that you'll inherit someday. It's not an immediate response. And that's where I think it becomes extra challenging because it's like, you have to be meek, you have to be a peacemaker, you have to be all this. And guess what? You may not see those blessings until after this life. You may not see those blessings right away. You may not change someone's heart because they see how kind you are to them. They might take advantage of that. And we, we like to think that, oh, I'm going to be so nice to them that they're going to stop doing what they're doing and change their hearts. And that could happen, but it's not guaranteed. And so when it doesn't happen, there's a kind of a lot of thought like, well, that was a waste of time or that didn't work. Now I'm worse off than I was, you know, and you have to have that eternal perspective and also understand that sometimes this stuff takes a long time 
to come to fruition. These blessings are not immediate. And the the alleviation from trial and from burden is not immediate. And that is where it gets hard because we feel like, well, I'm doing the right things. I should be getting blessings, right? Yeah, you will. It's We are told that when you do what I say, you will prosper in the land. You know, uh, you're going to receive blessings, but in the moment, I think, is when we lose, we have the potential to lose our focus. We have the potential to start saying, this doesn't work. It's not working. I'm not getting the blessings that I was told I would get. In the big picture of things, I think that, that that's often very difficult for people. That's really good that you say that, because that leads, leads me to, there, there's an article, well, there's a talk that I did, that Nur gave. It's in the church newsroom. It's titled Seven Lessons Elder Bagnar Has Learned About Obedience Over the Past 50 Years. <laughs> uh, and it's really, really good. But I'll just read the the seven highlighting points of each one of those, but, but it'd be good to think about. He says, the law of obedience is best understood within the context of Heavenly Father's plan of happiness in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Number two, obedience is an exercise of moral agency to learn about and understand and live according to God's commandments. Number three, obedience is connected with the central and central to all gospel truths and principles. Number four, we should not focus upon obedience as an isolated law that stands independent by itself. Number five, obedience is not transactional, but transformational. Number six, willing and heartfelt obedience yields to blessings of God's, uh, of commandments, not a few. Number seven, intelligence defined, intelligence defined as applying what we know for righteousness is obtained through obedience. And there's quite a bit more, I mean, but the, my favorite point is this one, number five, obedience is not transactional, but transformational. And, and then you, if we go back to Luke 6, verse 46, where the Lord says, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And one of the things that I've learned in the scriptures is that the Lord will ask me to do things through the scriptures, through these lessons, through the Spirit, through various means, that I don't understand, or I don't think it's going to make a difference. That's like 99% of the time. And if I do it with the hope, not because I'm just doing it because let's see the magic happen, but with a sincere hope that I'll understand why he's asking me this at some point. That moment does come, and I, my testimony grows, and I feel closer to the Savior, and I learn a lot more about myself, you know? And it's kind of these beatitudes, they were just given to the people. And, and you could imagine if you were there and you were thinking, this is kind of the opposite of what we're doing. You know, we're kind of more the eye for an eye. And actually I was on my way to go pluck an eye right now. You know, this guy, <laughs> you know, and, and it's as foreign as to them that may have feel and we can, read the scripture and say well absolutely the lord is right that's not the point the point is 
what is he telling us that we feel that way? Like, there's no way that this, or I, this seems like the opposite of my reaction. He's asking me to do the opposite of what I feel or what comes natural to me. And so he, you know, it ends with 48, uh, verse 48. Uh, say, well, 47. And whosoever cometh to me and hears my sayings and doth them, I will, I will liken him unto a man who built a house and dig deep and laid a foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose or trials happened and the stream beat vehemently upon the house or the Facebook post came or my friends fell away from the church or my spouse did this or my kid is doing that and could not shake it for it was founded upon a rock. So he's giving us a promise that if we do what he says, we will find ourselves that it's not, you won't have a flood, you won't have a stream, that somebody won't come and shake up your life. It's more, you will realize that you're on a rock and you're still here and everything's gonna be okay. Anyway. Yeah, and I think a lot about the people that heard these sermons and we're maybe hearing this stuff for the first time ever. I mean, for us, it's like, oh yeah, turn the other cheek. Like we've heard this kind of stuff our whole lives, but someone who for the first time ever is hearing this concept given to them. And those were some special prepared people. They were ready to, to hear that and they were ready to accept it and, and follow and continue to seek more information and guidance from the savior. It's kind of difficult for us to to hear that with fresh ears every single time. But I think when you do read it, there's kind of a reminder. When you start thinking about interactions you've had with people around you and you start thinking about the way you treat those that maybe you disagree with and you start to think, gosh, I could be better at this, you know? I could be better at, at being a little bit more patient. I can be better at being more merciful about being more meek, humble, uh, being a peacemaker, all of that. Uh, it reminds us that that's, that's really where strength is in, in kind of superseding the eye for an eye thing. And the real strength is in uh, seeking harmony with other people, not necessarily just bowing to them and accepting whatever they, they do, but finding a way to not just do, like you said, whatever comes first to your mind, whatever comes naturally, like taking time to think, is there a better way to react? Is there a better way for me to be? And the times I've done that, I've I've seen that the outcome is vastly better than when I try to force things or force people to do things. So yeah, that that's something I've experienced for sure. In our relationship with the Savior, he looks on the heart and is no respecter of persons. Consider how he chose his apostles. He didn't pay attention to status or wealth. He invites us to follow him, and I believe he reassures us that we belong with him. I testify that we grow in our discipleship when we exercise faith in the Lord during difficult times. As we do so, he will mercifully strengthen us and help us carry our burdens. 
The Savior knows your struggles in detail. He knows your great potential to grow in faith, hope, and charity. The commandments and covenants He offers you are not tests to control you. They are a gift to lift you towards receiving all the gifts of God and to returning home to your Heavenly Father and the Lord who love you.